KZSU, Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, land, the economy, and morality. Between the program, we have on Olivia Hanks. She's of the New Economy Project over in Britain. She's with the uh, Quaker organization, and they are looking at what a more moral economy means. What's her all about it? Welcome, Olivia. Hi, Mark. Uh, good to talk to you. Yeah. So, you know, uh, a lot of people may not know the first thing about Quakers, or you know, why they would even be behind a, a new economy project. So, yeah, why don't you give like kind of an introduction to say, you know, what, who are the Quakers? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know very much about Quakers or Quaker history, so I get that kind of question a lot when I talk about what I do. Um, so Quakers are um, a religious body. Uh, we're a, a church. So we've um, come from our roots are in Christianity, although not all British Quakers today would describe themselves as Christian. Um, and the from the earliest days of Quakerism, um, there's been a very strong Quaker tradition of kind of dissent and speaking out against um, against injustice and against persecution. So in the early days, in the 17th century in Britain, that was persecution of Quakers, that they were seen, you know, they were religious nonconformists. Um, Quakerism is very much based around the idea that we can all have a personal experience of God and a personal relationship with God. And that was very radical and controversial at the time. Um, so a lot of early Quakers were persecuted, um, ended up in prison, kind of excluded from public life for a long time. And so I think that that tradition has kind of lived on of this sense of standing up for for rights, for freedom of expression and sort of supporting the um, the underdog and supporting the persecuted in, in all walks of life, really. Um, one useful way I find of, of starting to think about Quakers is the the four um, core Quaker testimonies, which are kind of the core values um, that Quakers try to live their lives by. And those are peace, equality, simplicity and truth. Um, and I, I would say that Quakers, certainly in Britain, are probably best known for our work on peace and disarmament. We've got a very long tradition of campaigning for peace and nonviolence and for acting as mediators in, in all kinds of situations. Um, and also for uh, pacifism. So, you know, conscientious objectors during the, the world wars, many of them were Quakers who, who refused to fight because they refused to kill on, on moral grounds. Um, but aside from the work on peace, there are a lot of Quakers who feel led by their faith to work for social justice and all kinds of related issues around environmental protection, for instance, today the rights of migrants and refugees. So there's a very strong kind of thread of social action, I would say, uh, among Quakers. And a key part of that is is acting for a more just economic system. Yeah. So um, I'd say for a long time, a lot of Quakers have been involved in kind of standing up against injustice and opposing kind of government policies that hurt the poor, standing up for, yeah, for the poor and, and marginalised. Um, and in, in recent years, we've sort of come to see as an organisation and as, as a church that while that's vital, it's not enough. Um, so the, the yearly meeting of British Quakers um, kind of stated in, um, in 2011 um, that... I'll, I'll quote, 
the global economic system is posited on continued expansion and growth, and in its pursuit of growth, it is often unjust, violent and destructive. We need to ask the question whether this system is so broken that we must urgently work with others of faith and goodwill to put in its place a different system in which our testimonies can flourish. So that statement, if you like, is sort of the root of our current work on building a new economy, this recognition that it isn't enough to simply deal with the symptoms of injustice, that we, we must get to the root causes and actually um, try, yeah, try to build a, a different economic system altogether. Yeah, and, and for, for background, I guess, um, yeah, I I have always been kind of very skeptical of organized religion, but for the last, you know, uh, year, I've been kind of drawn towards the Quaker Church, uh, the Society of, of Friends, uh, because I uh, was just very impressed by the fact that they could turn a deep moral impulse into real action. And, you know, historically and, and recently, I was just seeing it draw so many people to real positive real positive work uh, and i think that's i mean i think uh, other churches do do similar things but i think the quakers are really exceptional in in listening to their own intuition and and turning this into deep thought uh and and really uh analyzing things and, and making action out of it absolutely i mean and i think that is the the best of religion because I, I share your suspicion of, of organized religion um i've always shied away from it myself and i think among Quakers, there's very much a, um, a belief in, in free thinking and in living your faith through what you do um, in terms of your how you, you act um, yeah, for equality, for peace and, and with integrity. Um, and I think that those, those values really do come out in a lot of the work that, that Quakers do. And, and and something like this, it doesn't come down from a Quaker Pope of sorts. Quaker has mm. very much a bottom-up, you know, kind of decentralized approach to everybody listening to each other and through good faith interactions really coming through with what they believe is the best way to approach what is the truth and what, what action should be. Absolutely. And it's, it's really fundamental to... Quakerism that there are no priests there is no as you say no no Quaker Pope that there is no kind of authority between God and us and that we can all have a personal relationship with a personal experience of God and I think the um, tradition of uh, Quaker silent worship is very powerful as well that that Quaker meetings um, generally are held in silence so there isn't anybody standing up kind of telling people what to think or what to do or, or leading in any way. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it begins with silence. And then usually at some point during the meeting, somebody will feel led to speak. Um, they'll feel moved by the spirit or by God or whatever they want to call it. This, this sense of something bigger than them that's pulling them to their feet to, to, to speak and, and say what's on, what's in their heart. Um, and that can be a really powerful thing to witness actually. And I think, yeah, it is, it is a very different experience from um, other churches. Yeah. So, uh, so the New Economy Project. You're the program manager, and uh, so what? What exactly is the the efforts of, of of the project? What what is what is the outcomes we hope to see from this New Economy Project? Yeah. So I, I work for a department called uh, Quaker Peace and Social Witness within the wider organisation of Quakers in Britain, and we work to essentially support Quakers who are working um, to put their faith into action and, you know, social action of various kinds. 
And so when the, the yearly meeting made this statement in 2011 about the the destruction and violence of the current economic system and the need to to build something else in its place and, and to question the, the current system, uh, we had to respond to that as, as staff. And one of the ways we did that was to talk to lots of Quakers around the country. We held lots of workshops to put together what we've called the principles for a new economy. So that was back in 2015. Um, and it's a document of 10 kind of high level principles for what what would a Quaker economy actually look like? What When we talk about something where Quaker values, Quaker testimonies could, could flourish, what does that actually mean? Um, and so the, the principles cover things like we, we do not overconsume the earth's resources um, and that everyone has an equal right to access to global commons such as land, soil, water and air. Um, the well-being of people and planet are not sacrificed to preserve profits or to reduce national deficits. And there's also points about a more diverse economy with different kinds of business structure and ownership. Um and about a progressive tax system where richer people pay a greater proportion of their income. So it, it covers a kind of a whole range of issues that we may or may not associate with economics, but which all go together to kind of um, create the economy on which a, a society runs. And, and and in this work, which I guess, you know, uh, part of this is a series of, of booklets about individual parts mm. of this economy is... Uh, it isn't just, and I, I feel more and more people are saying there's something really wrong with the capitalist system we live in today. But it is, you know, I think in in correspondence to the idea of looking and and really thinking and uh, feeling deeply, you know, trying to pinpoint where are the points it's you know things have gone or are always been wrong and what needs to be the positive change uh and just not it's not a tear it down in a clean revolution but it is you know real work that real people have to do yeah and i think it's very important to translate it into kind of real world initiatives and real practical projects because i think the concepts can feel very daunting when you say you know we need to completely rebuild our economic system and even talking about economics and the economy is quite off-putting and intimidating to a lot of people. One of the things that we identified when we were um, working with Quakers on these principles for a new economy was that many Quakers felt that they felt very concerned about economic issues and injustice, but they simply didn't feel kind of qualified. They didn't feel comp um, confident to talk about economic issues and and address those kind of those questions and it's I think it's seen very much as something that we, we leave to the experts you know but frankly most of the experts have made a bit of a mess of it and I think there's been a growing realization over the last decade since the the financial crash that actually kind of the economic orthodoxy you know neoclassical economics free market economics it, it simply hasn't worked it's created vast inequalities it's created a system where a lot of people feel very alienated from their community. They feel lonely, alienated from any connection with the land and the natural world. Um, and it's now, you know, we're on a path to kind of climate catastrophe as well um, because of this obsession with growth and kind of rampant um, capitalism that just seeks profit at the expense of everything else. So I think there are more and more people who are, are questioning those things, but they need the tools with which to do it and with which to have those conversations. Um, 
so as you um, referred to, we responded to this realisation that people felt that they, they lacked confidence or they lacked understanding of economic issues by producing a series of seven booklets um, on different themes around the new economy. So we started with one called What's the Economy For?, which looks at that question and looks at how we measure success in the economy and whether GDP is really a good measure of a successful economy. And if we don't talk just in those numbers, what might we want to measure? Um, What different solutions might there be? Um, And then other, other further booklets looked at energy, work, ownership and so on. Um, and the idea was that Quakers would, local Quaker meetings would set up reading groups to discuss these booklets and these ideas together um, in a kind of safe environment to have those sorts of discussions in the hope that they would go out and have wider conversations with other people in their community um, and that they might have some ideas and feel inspired to actually start their own projects or get involved with local projects to really um, to, to build that new economy. Yeah, and I, and I think when you talk about how the neoclassical paradigm has, you know, made people feel like they are left out, it is for the people, you know, behind the curtain to just speak their language. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, before, you know, before the neoclassical you know, revolution, and especially before, like, uh, it became so mathematically rigorous and opaque in the 1950s, I, I think people try to explain ideas and people, but but now it is just, trust us, the point of an economy is to grow a GDP, a GDP is what's good, and that's all there is to it. And there's it's a tautology that people just... You know, uh, that's all that's all there is to say. And yeah, yeah well, I mean, 100 years ago, we used to talk about political economy. So there was a, an acknowledgement that it was subjective. It, it was political. And as you say, there was this kind of movement that's been incredibly successful <laughs> to where that claiming that economics is a hard science. You know, it, it's like maths or physics where you you just put in numbers and you, you know, it, you'll always get the same answers kind of thing. And it's remarkable, really, how that has persisted. This myth of, you know, humans as completely rational, completely self-interested beings, whose every action is purely about maximising their own, you know, their their own profit or their their own utility, um, and that just it just doesn't reflect the real world in any way. And I feel that the vast majority of people know that, and yet this myth has kind of has been incredibly powerful. And if you talk about GDP, it is, you know, what is it really measuring? It's measuring Mm -hmm. all transactions in a large volume, which is like, is that really what determines a good world? Uh, It's crazy, isn't it? Oil spills, they're really good for GDP. (laughs) Divorce, crime rates, all of that. It it creates economic activity, so it's good for GDP. But I think very few people would argue that those were signs of a, a successful society. Leisure is is a sign of a very poor society. Having any sort of rest uh, and any sign of things not breaking all around you, but yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, and and I think if you talk about you know political economy, yeah, you know it was economy was originally a, more of a subset or or corresponding with you know philosophy and morality, and I think that. It has become just applied mathematics in a way that I think that it is for people who care about what is right and what is wrong to claw back a lot of that and say, what kind of world do we want to live in? Yeah. And a lot of that is about the language we use as well. I think it's very interesting when you watch, you know, politicians talk about the economy and they'll say things like talking about 
upsetting the markets or that kind of there's these invisible market forces as though we existed to serve the economy and not the other way around. Uh, and I think all of that serves to reinforce this idea that the economy somehow just exists independently of us, that it's like the laws of physics and, you know, there's, there's nothing we can do to influence it. And I think we have to, as you say, claw that back and make it clear at every opportunity that the economy is political and that the situations we're in, so like the situation in Britain with high levels of poverty and inequality, those are political choices. That's not just something that's kind of inevitable. And if you talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, climate change, you know, the fact that we're polluting the environment so much to the to the fact that we can't control it anymore is this is something which doesn't even really reflect itself in the kind of models of the economy as, as it would go. This is just outside of it. And there are people who currently profit from status quo. And if you just uh, accede their property rights to do whatever it takes, uh, yeah, you'll you'll never change the system to allow us to survive. I, I think it's really it's the ultimate illustration of why the current economic paradigm, you know, has failed. That it take it's simply unable to take account of p- pollution and to take account of future generations. So, for example, agriculture would be an example where we've kind of ha- industrialized the farming system and use incredibly high carbon inputs, fertilizers that are destroying the soil as well as polluting the atmosphere in pursuit of high yields this year and next year. But with the result that, I mean, some experts say that we've degraded the soil so far that we might only have less, you know, something like 60 to 100 harvests left in, in the soil, which is absolutely, I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to think about, which is why most people, you know, don't, don't think about it. But that's what our economic system has created because it's completely unable to actually deal meaningfully with the future. And, and this is, you know, one of the principles is the idea that, you know, all resources of the earth should belong to everybody um, on earth, as opposed to the idea that if you are a farmer, yeah, you can pollute it, you can waste it, you can just destroy the world because, yeah, that's your property rights, as opposed to saying we all deserve access and future generations also deserve access to this. Yeah. And actually, when you look at the Bible, it's incredibly radical in that regard, in the way that it talks about you know the about ownership and about stewardship of the land and i think quakers and and other um uh kind of radical christians um that there is a very powerful school of thought there about stewardship of the land and that can we really own the land at all um i mean there's um gerard winstanley who was almost certainly a a quaker in, in the 17th century um argued for a world in which quote there shall be no buying nor selling nor fairs, nor markets, but the whole earth shall be a common treasury. Yeah. And that, that's, that's incredibly radical. Um, and that's, I think that sort of strain in Christianity has always existed, but it seem, it's become, it's, it's, it's remained very marginal. Uh, and I think that we're, we're trying to bring that back to the forefront, not just within churches and, you know, within the faith communities, but that actually it's a common sense concept that, the land is a common treasury. It is. It's all we've got. We only have this one home to live on, and we have to be able to perpetuate that indefinitely. It's not something we can simply exploit and use up, and then you know find another. 
And I mean, and it, of course, when you want to actually turn this into action and say, well, we all agree, you have to fight back against very special interests. You know, in you know the House of Lords in the UK has fought back against giving up any of their <laughs> ownership of land for for centuries. And I mean, and I guess it comes down to what what does it take to face off against such powerful interests of so many different forms. Mm. It's very difficult, and I think that change needs to come from the top and the bottom. Um, I think you often get, especially in the sort of the environment movement, you get this kind of almost a dispute between is it about individual action and lifestyle changes and people doing things for themselves, or is it about policy change from government? And I mean, it, it has to be both. Um, neither one will work without the other, and we all have to take responsibility. We have, but we have to argue and 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 lobby for system change as well as just making changes in our own lives. And that, so I think the same applies really with a concept like ownership. I mean, obviously, to some extent, yes, we need the system to change. We can't. There's a limit to what we can do on our own. But in order to create an environment where the system can change, we need to be having that conversation. We need to be making that case. I mean, it's become incredibly difficult even to to challenge those ideas about private property and ownership that have been very successfully kind of promoted by um i guess largely right-wing politicians for, for a very long time um to the point where even you find that even people who are very poor and don't own their own home let alone own any other land or anything you know that they will still be very outraged by the idea of kind of wealth taxes, property taxes, inheritance tax, even though it would be something that actually would be redistributive and would would benefit them. Um, but there's this, these ideas of it's yours, you own it, are so ingrained that even people who suffer because of it are often, you know, you often find are defending it. Yeah. And I, and I think that's yeah, you could say it's a very optimistic, you know, but core part of the of the idea of equality of all people is that all people are essentially they 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 strive for what's fair and good, and it's a system in so many ways which stops us from you know corresponding fairly. And people who have have benefited from this from the system, uh, and you see like how they defend it. There's like this weird kind of machinations of trying to defend it's like oh the the system is fair you know because i think that no matter what it's very rare that you find even a powerful person who says what i'm doing is wrong but i'm doing it anyway it feels like everyone has to at least believe to themselves that what they're doing is right at the same time i think in certainly in britain it's become since the 2016 uh, referendum where the uk voted to leave the european union it's become almost a truism that that our society is is really is broken, um, that things aren't working, that too many people are, are excluded from the economy and from prosperity. There's incredibly high levels of mental illness and loneliness, um, and you know I feel like that's very widely acknowledged now, and yet that strain of thought that I suppose comes from the Thatcher, Thatcher years, really, Thatcher and Reagan and neoliberalism, when that really took over in, in the 1980s, this um, kind of motto that there is no alternative. And I think that's very strong with people, even if they feel that the system is wrong, that they're unhappy, that they're not thriving, and that actually most other people aren't thriving either. 
there's this this feeling that we simply can't do anything about it. That's just the way it is. And there's there's a lot of false dichotomies there. When you talk about Thatcherism and Reaganism, it tends to be like you either choose, you know, the kind of, you know, extreme Maoist, you know, ideas that have been proven to fail or you choose small businessmen doing, a you know, doing their fair service. And it, it's phrased in a way that tries to be this is what society should be in a way that seems appealing, but... Uh, in a lot of ways, how is this compatible with the end result of just uh, absolute hands off to uh, you know billions of of profit in in destroying the environment? And I think what the new economy work does, so not just our work, but that much wider movement for a, a, a new economy, is it creates a space that where we say actually it isn't a question of either you have kind of rampant capitalism and you privatize everything or you have big state socialism that there's this huge space in between where people do things for themselves not for profit for each other for their community to um, protect and improve the land um, to support each other and build strong local economies and that's always happened we've just we've got a political and economic context where it's it's very challenging at the moment but there are people you know, running social enterprises, running cooperatives, whether it's in housing cooperatives, community land trusts, community energy projects, or simply kind of small businesses, um, you know, working not for profit, that there are masses of people doing those things. And I think that what is needed and what is coming about with some of this wider new economy movement is a sense that all of that is part of a movement. It's not just an anomaly where somebody does something locally. It is actually a different system that is going on parallel to the kind of the dominant system. Yeah, and I think it's it's the idea that powerful ideas can can in a you know non-centralized way just kind of bubble up and make a change. And I, I think what one interesting example is uh, you know historically you know Quakers would be in in commerce. And it's it's not like a utopian. There is no trading, but they they would tend to believe from an early time that it's wrong to charge different customers different prices for the same item when that was the status quo for right. all of history. Yeah. So you know, putting a fixed price tag on an item that was a radical act at one time. But now it's it's really unthinkable to think that you we would see such price discrimination at, at a supermarket. Yeah, although we do see it in other markets. So, for example, what's known as the poverty premium with energy, for instance, where people, um, poorer people often have to pay for metered electricity where you kind of you pay each time you use it almost or you pay for a fixed amount. And that's a much more expensive way to use electricity. Um, but it's what they have to do because that's what they can afford because they can only afford a small amount of money at a time. So as one example, there's, there's lots of areas of life where that poverty premium comes into play. And it's, it's quite interesting you talk about that sort of price discrimination, because you're right. I mean, in the supermarket, that would be absolutely outrageous. But actually, there are lots of places where we do see that still happening. Yeah, and I think it's the case. It's, we're, we're so used to seeing it in one case. If, if, it, if it's common, you take it as, oh, this is a fact of nature. But there's so many places in which there's such inequities around us that we just, this is a, a fact of life. And I think if you look at everything from the fact that what is it like to be a homeowner versus what is it like to be housing insecure? It's if you just yeah. that's that's if you either say that's the way society should be, or you know, is this really is this really right, and what can we do about it? And there's a there's a wide sort of spectrum of of views among Quakers about 
what all the kind of implications of all this and what we should do about it. So you talked about Quakers in commerce. And of course, that was very, there were a lot of high profile Quaker businesses in the 19th century. Um, and while we might view some of these measures as not particularly kind of um, egalitarian now, a lot of Quaker businessmen um, had what were then very sort of progressive approaches. Um, so in in the UK, famously, we had the the chocolate um, businesses. So um, Bourneville was the the village that was built um, by the Cadburys in Birmingham, and then um, the Roundtrees in York um, built a village for their workers to ensure that their workers would be housed properly and and live in decent conditions. Um, and now that look, obviously looks very kind of paternalistic to us. But at the time, that was a very radical thing to do. And they were kind of sneered at and scorned and told it would never work. And they were, you know, bleeding heart liberals or whatever. Um, but actually, it was very successful. And it was it was good for their businesses, um, as well as being morally right. Um, so and there were some there were Quakers today who sort of to say, well, you know, we, we used to do all this. The Quakers used to have a really strong influence in business and we should try to recapture that and, you know, business would be better off if it had more of a Quaker ethos. Um, so there's there's lots of Quakers who feel, I think, that we, we need a kind of, we need capitalism, but we need a fairer, better regulated, more ethical form of capitalism. And then there are Quakers who are socialists, um, who are kind of ecological thinkers, or who, who really think that actually this, what we want can never come about under capitalism at all, and we have to change the system completely. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think if you certainly say if you're entering into a market in which everyone is acting in a cutthroat manner to do immoral things to 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 serve the bottom line, can you really compete in that without drawing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, without getting in the mud with them. And I think it's it might be I, I think idealistic to think that you really can change the system from within in that in that way when it's yeah it's really systemic issues that you can't just be one. You know, one one nice guy in the in the field, and I, I think there's a lot of different models that this this introduces of you know what could work look like in a way that isn't just you know uh, you know just just let the market clear what are wages you know what is and this is just trust just trust the outcomes. I mean, I think that what fundamentally is the point of working in this is there's the point being it's it's to serve the community and to produce what the community needs and. The market for labor, in a lot of ways, is supposed to make that happen. Not just people should live miserable lives working because that's just what the market says. Yeah, and then of course we also have the whole of the, the core economy, the vast amounts of unpaid work that go unrecognized by the economic system, but that actually create the, you know, even besides thinking about it from a kind of perspective of individual well-being and well-being of communities, that work creates the conditions for the labour market to to run. I mean, unless you have people who are fed and clothed and happy and looked after, um, none of that can happen. Nobody's earning any money. Um, so I think it's that that's you know hugely kind of underrecognised by the current system. And there's lots of different suggestions out there for how that could be addressed, like a universal basic income, for instance. Yeah, I like how um, this addresses the idea of, of what people could do with extra time for their community. Because in that way, if you give people extra time, that doesn't serve the GDP. It's it's just, it's it's a waste in that sense. But in, in, in reality, you know that if people have more time to do unpaid work to, to help people and help themselves, yeah, they're, they're, this could have a, a great outcome, especially as things get more and more automated. 
Can I talk a little bit more about, so that we obviously, I talked about the booklets for the, sure, yeah. the New Economy series, and that sort of came to an end beginning of this year. Okay, yeah. And we've been looking at how we take that work forward, because the idea was for a kind of a three-year project, and then that would come to an end and we'd move on and do something else. But actually, it's generated so much enthusiasm and energy. There's been so much demand for the booklets. We had over 60 reading groups set up that have gone through them and discussed them, um, that we felt, okay, we... We, we want to take this forward. We can't just kind of let this let this drop. Um, and what a lot of the the reading groups were saying was, okay, this we really liked the booklets. We had some really interesting discussions. What do we do now? Um, and I've been looking. I've so I've been in this job for about six months, and I've been kind of looking at how we take things forward and help Quakers around the country to bridge that gap between kind of reflection and action. And in practical terms, what does it actually mean to build the new economy? And how can we, as an organisation, support Quakers and Quakers involved in other local projects to, to do that work? Um, and one of the ways we do that is to offer small, over the very small grants, very small amounts of money um, for projects that uh, are related to the new economy or sustainability. Um, and we get some really interesting projects coming out of that which often they don't actually they don't need much money in, in a way it's as much about having the conversation with us and us being able to support them and give them a bit of a confidence boost and that little bit of financial backup to make sure that they're you know the work can actually happen um but so we've had there's a group that's exploring land value tax um which i know is something that you've you're interested in as well um they're looking at kind of producing a briefing and having an event to inform more people about the issue because it's something that's not really in that much sort of mainstream public discourse yet um and then there's some more kind of practical initiatives like we've just given a grant to a project in devon in the southwest of england um that's looking at how local procurement can create a more resilient local economy so rather than money going out of the economy to kind of multinational companies or whatever that we buy services in from could those services what could local institutions like local authorities and hospitals and schools could they spend their money locally instead um, and keep more of that money in the local economy so that's a very that's in the very sort of early stages but we've given them a little bit of money to do some of the initial kind of scoping and making contacts about that so that there's there's all kinds of levels on which people can engage with this work you know there's there's another group that's running a project or this it's not purely a quaker project but there are quakers involved um teaching people in uh, also in Devon, actually, in a kind of traditional fishing community, teaching them traditional skills um, around uh, fishing and cooking sustainable local fish, which is the kind of the, the skills and traditions that are, that are being lost in a lot of places. Um, so, and I say all of that, it comes under the sort of new economy umbrella. It can cover an awful lot of things. And it's, there's lots of ways that people can lend their, whether it's that they've got particular skills or they've got time or they've got money or whatever it is. I think everybody can have a part to play. Yeah, so it sounds like a mixture of of both, you know, inter interfacing with government policy, but then also mm. seeing what you can do in your own community. And I, I, yeah, and I think that comes back to what I said about, you know, it has to be both. We have to face in both directions. And that's something that we in Quaker Peace and Social Witness try very hard to do, that we provide a voice for Quakers nationally and we talk to the government and try to have that influence on, on government policy, sometimes alongside other churches as well. Um, but we're also always supporting local Quakers to do what they want to do to make changes in their own lives and in their communities.
So, so when when one is trying to make their you know, make a a difference in through the government uh, in in the UK, how does that tend to uh, work? Or what what kind of? Um, it's difficult. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, there are very powerful lobbies who you know have the ear of government and and have a lot of money and can can pour a lot of resources into influencing government policy, and we we see that in. I suppose one of the most stark examples is the kind of massive subsidies that are still being poured into fossil fuel industries. Um, so the government is still, in, in spite of kind of on the face of it, acknowledging the reality of of, of climate change and the, the need to, to make big changes, which I suppose in, in that regard, we're perhaps one step ahead of the US at the moment, um, sadly. But, um, but they'll kind of talk the talk. But actually, when you look at the policies, it's supporting fracking. They're supporting the oil and gas. They're pouring money into new, you know, new runways, airports, and kind of very high carbon infrastructure projects. And so it's clear that you know that, that that's a lot of that is down to very influential, um, very powerful lobbyists, essentially. So it is, it's hugely challenging to kind of uh, be a <laughs> try to be a counterbalance to that. Um, I think what we do have as a faith organisation is the government's quite interested in in faith organisations and getting faith communities on side, I think. Um, So we found that sometimes we can, that creates a little bit of a space for us to speak. And we have perhaps a certain amount of moral authority on on issues, especially around um, issues of peace, but I think also to some extent on sustainability issues as well. Um, And when we speak out on poverty, I think when faith organizations do speak out against injustice like that it, it can often be quite powerful um but yeah i mean the process of trying to trying to influence government is a is a long and, and difficult one yeah and especially when uh when these policies as you say it can make it things can look like action is being taken things are green from the outside but there's often a lot of very invisible very very subtle things that tend to uh make a big difference in 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 how regressive outcomes can can still take place yeah and i think that's why it's useful for us as a faith organization to have we've got you know some policy expertise we've got people working on these issues so they can really hold the government to account so that we can't just fobbed off when the government says, oh, yes, yes, we take this very seriously and we're, we're doing something about it. We're actually going to look at the detail and say, well, you know, actually, no, you're not. Um, and that we're not going to be quiet and go away. We are going to keep nagging you and keep asking you, you know, keep talking to you until you actually listen and, and take notice. Um, and I, I think that's something that we've sometimes been able to play a leading role in, despite being a fairly small church. Um, we can be that... Uh, slightly radical edge and uh, you know sometimes bring other churches with us a little bit in what we do and maybe nudge them to be a little bit more radical than they might otherwise have been able to be. Yeah and and I think when you talk about kind of the moral authority combined with the radicalism I mean as opposed to what is other forms of radicalism could could say like it means real armed rebellion. I mean, Quakers hold very dear the idea of peace and nonviolence. So when when action needs to be taken, you know, uh, going to the streets with a guillotine isn't on the table. So you have to find you have to find. <laughs> no, um, I think it's important to note that nonviolence isn't the same as kind of passivity. I think people sometimes think that because Quakers are. Or tend to be pacifists and have a very strong tradition of, of peace and nonviolence, that that means that 
we can sort of be walked all over. And in fact, really, the opposite is true. I think Quakers are often very outspoken and very kind of plain speaking and will go and if they see injustice, they will call it out. And that's something I've really come to kind of respect among the, the, the Quakers that I've met while, while working here. Um, and I think that actually what we can see now with our current economic system is that it is overwhelmingly a system of violence and exploitation. That's violence against the land when we look at the kind of the fossil fuel industry and other extractive industries, the way that we kind of go and um, abuse and destroy lands of usually other, other cultures in other countries um, for private profit. That's an act of violence. When we displace people from their lands, they're including kind of sacred um, indigenous lands, that's an act of violence. Um, and of course, many more kind of direct acts of violence that that, that, that come about in uh, as a result of those kind of um, those policies of, of exploitation. Um, so in fact, what we're dealing with is an incredibly violent system. And I think really history shows us that meeting violence with violence is rarely effective, that actually it's more powerful to find a way to speak out and say, no, we have to end the violence. We have to find a way to communicate with each other that is not based on violence um, and to actually uh, live side by side in a way that is is not is not based on just furthering existing conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think in the United States, it's, it's very, uh, you know, people would tend to say the Civil War was you know, a clean, violent act that ended slavery, and that's the only way you can do it. Uh, and I think that, I mean, the U.S. has, of course, a, you know, a very central and, and I mean, it, it, it was never going to be a clean, easy way out. But, you know, Britain, a few decades before, had had excised its own involvement with, with slavery. And this was largely done from a moral compulsion from the bottom mm. up. You know, the you largely Quaker abolitionists, you know, were saying that we cannot have this on our conscience. And it was a it was a it was a major part of the GDP at the time. But Yeah, and, and people did it by boycotting uh, products derived from slavery. And I think that that's a powerful weapon when society views us only as consumers. That's a negative. You know, we're, we're citizens. We're not merely consumers. But one way we can be active as consumers is to make choices about what we buy, what we consume based on those moral considerations. I think that was a that was a very powerful tool back then um, in the abolition movement. Um, it was a very powerful tool in ending apartheid in South Africa. And it can be very powerful now in... Um, destroying the fossil fuel industry which is is what we have to do and we have to do it fast yeah and i, th I think it's there can be kind of an idea of like oh if, if it's if it's through ethical consumption it can just be about you take a slightly shorter shower you feel good about it but it's not about feeling good about yourself it's about really causing the kind of 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 environment that that makes people have to change it's it's not just about kind of this this you know personal morality it's about the fact that the morality engages in a system that that affects real actions of other people yeah and it's interesting that when sort of on some levels government will acknowledge that they can policies can influence behavior change i mean of course they know that taxation can influence behavior change in all kinds of ways but when it comes to environmental policies there's a kind of resistance to the idea that government can actually do anything um that somehow we've just got to you know people are just going to have to figure it out we can't and, and I think maybe that's because people sometimes immediately leap to the conclusion that it would be about banning things, you know, that we'd have to ban meat or something in, in order to reduce our 
carbon footprint. But actually, government can influence things in in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be by, you know, actually kind of banning a product or a certain activity. They can do it through taxation. They can do it through education campaigns. They can do it through, yeah, kind of nudging people to behave in different ways. Um, and I think it's that governments really need to sort of step up and, and take some moral responsibility for those for those issues now. Yeah, and, I, and I, I hope that there's enough thoughtfulness that I think, you know, France in recent months has been a real, I think, uh, stark note of, of, of a case where things went pretty wrong insofar as a gas tax. I think if you look at the effect on the environment, a gas tax is just a necessary and good thing. It should be pervasive for all carbon output to reflect the fact that pollution happens. But because the uh, French government mixed the gas tax with a very uh, you know, powerful serving cut to wealth taxes, it was seen as regressive in a way that I think the most unfortunate thing is now it looks like it's progressive to fight against the gas tax. And that's yeah. an awful result. And, and I think that's been a widespread kind of misunderstanding and, and misreporting to some extent of those protests, because actually it wasn't really just about a fuel tax. It was about massive kind of discontent with an out of touch government and president and with communities feeling completely you know that they're they're poor they're isolated and that the the fuel tax was this kind of they rely on their car to get to work because there isn't a decent public transport system in rural areas and so to then have this kind of extra tax slapped onto that it just it would have just felt like a final kind of kick in the teeth um so i think it really goes to show that you know, we we all know those kind of carbon taxes are absolutely vital. They're going to be absolutely fundamental in the the, the fight to to prevent catastrophic climate change. But they have to be introduced in a way that that is just and that is going to you know be accepted by the public. Um, and they you know fuel taxes do tend to be regressive and those kind of consumption taxes in general because people with lower incomes spend more of that income on those kind of basic necessities um so we have to find a way to make those taxes progressive in the way that we spend the revenues yeah um and so it was such a mistake from the um macron in france to implement a tax like that as you say alongside cuts in taxes for the wealthy and without you know using that money to or, or rather without beforehand implementing a much better system of public transport or you know provision for cycling or whatever it might be in order to actually make it possible for people to make those choices and of course this is also combined with you know, how our cities function you know if if people have if our cities are so unaffordable and only are accessible to people with certain incomes or already you know wealth into the city and you're on the outside looking in yeah your car is the only way that you have access and I, you know, looking at the idea, and this this goes with the idea of the land belongs to everybody. You know, the land in the cities belongs to everybody as well. Would be a way of saying that nobody should have to commute in because they're, you know, they are always forced to say the city is never going to make room for me. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, and again, there's something there about local economies and people where possible, being able to live near where they work and that there are thriving, you know, there are opportunities for work and meaningful kind of involvement in, in the community for everybody at a local level and people aren't forced to commute long distances into cities if they don't want to. Yeah, it's just, it's it's almost everything bad at once, which is just people <laughs> wasting a huge portion of their life 
polluting to to get to a place and we build all this infrastructure for roadways as opposed to yeah just trying to serve people in, in ways that actually will make their lives just you know work better with each other and just be more enjoyable to you know <laughs> to, to live uh, but uh yeah and, and i think if you talk about the regressivity i think it's wor- you're worth stating that you know you could say a gas tax is regressive, but really it's about the entire holistic picture of how you fund the government. And yeah. you can't just say a gas tax is regressive. The idea is you need to fund the government progressively, which means what is the entire you know portfolio of, of revenue? Yeah, sources. you have to look at the system as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what and what you do with that that tax revenue as well. So uh, yeah, so I I am I am part of you know a, a friends meeting here in Palo Alto, California, and you're over there in in Britain, and I think there is kind of you know a bit of a cultural change you can see between uh, the way the Quakers are in either places. They obviously have a lot in common. I think that the yeah. the deep moral uh, you know. Uh, I guess you know what the testimonies mean to each person in their own conscience is is fairly widely shared. You know, even though people can feel in different ways. But well, yeah. What do you? What have you experienced between you know? What does the American version of the uh, Quakers look like to you from over there? So I suppose I've been interested to find out a little bit about kind of Quakers around the world because I didn't really know very much about Quakers outside Britain before starting this job. And I still don't know a lot, but I was very interested to find out, for instance, that the country with the most Quakers in is um, is Kenya um, and that there was a strong kind of evangelical tradition of Quakerism in the United States because, of course, a lot of the early Quakers emigrated from Britain because of persecution. And that's that's why they were Quakers in the US. Um, but then some of those went and actually kind of as, you know, missionaries to East Africa with the result there's a lot of Quaker communities there and have they have apparently really quite different traditions and different ways of worshipping. So I think it's very interesting how these things can evolve differently in different places. Um, and as you say, I think this kind of the importance of personal experience and personal conscience is probably central Um it's, you know, here and in the US, but I don't know whether politically things are different. I think in, in Britain, Quakers are, of course, there's a whole spectrum of political views um, within, you know, Quake, Quakers just as in any sort of organisation or any any group. But um, I think we tend to be seen as fairly kind of left wing, um, as, as one of the more kind of radical churches, um, yeah. And yeah, known for sort of for, for pacifism, I suppose. Um, yeah, and I think I think over here, and I think you know worldwide, it's it's interesting to kind of see the the way that the kind of anarchist uh, you know undertones of it have always said like if there's disagreements, you split into two, and you kind of have two different threads going. So in a lot of ways, there is very different forks of, of Quakerism. And yeah, I think the unprogrammed Quakers, which is the really sitting in silence, is very yeah. different than the programmed... I mean, to me, like the, the Kenyan church, I, I'm, I'm glad if it makes people happy, but to me, it's not very different than the you know the Protestant churches that mm. I don't have a whole lot of time for, but uh, I don't want to you know condemn. <laughs> I mean, I just think I think the, the unprogrammed Quaker, which I would say does definitely have a left wing and, and even radical edge, uh, is certainly something I find much more unique among all, you know, all religious life uh, and not just another you know, Protestant 
uh, adjacent uh, sort sort of sort of sect. And I, you know, I'd say in America, the the unprogrammed churches that I've seen are definitely left wing. Although I think that I don't know if it's just a matter of uh, happenstance that there isn't so much of, of a focused uh, economic program here. But I, I I certainly would not be surprised if uh, something. Uh, some you know either the new economy project you know finds a footing here or in a slightly different form but i I don't see a whole lot of reason why this isn't absolutely universal yeah i think one of the things i i like about quakers is that a lot i've found that a lot of quakers have kind of it's a faith that they have they have come to as a as, as journey in their lives that they might have come from a different faith background or no faith background at all and it's something they've kind of found for themselves. And of course, that's not always true. There are obviously people who are born into Quaker families and and, and stay um, within the Quaker community. But th- there are lots of people who come to it for themselves. And it's a very kind of low pressure environment. You know, there there isn't any sense that you you have to be anyone particular or do anything particular in order to join. And there isn't any pressure to stay either. Um, it has to be what's right for you as an individual. And so I think that does create a very different atmosphere and yeah, an atmosphere of kind of independent thought. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's a challenge for Quakers in Britain as it is for really, I think all churches in this country to be, to show that we're relevant to the younger generation and to, to people today. I mean, we've got an aging demographic um, and I, as we said earlier, you know, I understand a lot of that kind of mistrust of religion and a lot of people feel, I think, that it's no longer relevant to their lives. But what I found with working here and with talking to Quakers and seeing the, the good work that Quakers have done and continue to do is that actually, as a as a faith, Quakerism has a huge amount to, to it really, I think it really speaks to our kind of situation today of environmental crisis and economic inequality and a feeling that society is is quite broken and we need to find ways through that. Um, And it seems to me that, you know, Quakers have an enormous amount to offer in that regard. And and that certainly meets with my experience of, of, I think that there is, yeah, I think what has religion meant to most people, if it is just this, a bunch of, you know, know-it-alls who are just wrong about everything and just, whereas I think that no matter, you know, how non-religious or anti-religious someone are, most people do have a deep moral sense. And I think that moral sense, it comes from the fact that they believe that essentially right and wrong matters. And I'd say that even if someone is, you know, absolutely, you know, against organized religion, as I think I was and still am, basically, I think it's, it's, it, it, I think it's worth considering when you are hearing your conscience speak, what is that process like? And and I think that Quakerism is a, is a weird and I think incredibly relevant way that people can really become attuned with their own personal conscience. And I, I, I certainly think there's a lot of people who might really, uh, you know, find a lot of meaning in it that just don't know about it yet. So... Uh, yeah, I think so too. I think there is a, there is a desire for some kind of... Um for community and for perhaps for a spiritual community among people who felt that for whatever reason um, the the church or the faith community that they grew up in is not is not for them. Um, I don't want to kind of denigrate other other religions or organised religion. I think that perhaps for a lot of people there's an element of um, tradition and ritual that is central to that that is, is is different and they perhaps wouldn't 
feel at home um, in in Quakerism. But I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think there, that it does. It clearly has a place in in the modern world, and um, I've definitely become much more <laughs> open to concepts like spirituality, which I would have been very skeptical of until quite recently. Um, I think now that in some ways it's the climate crisis more than anything that's made me feel we have to just rethink the way we do things, the way we talk about the world, the way we, we see the world. Um, and that it, if religion is a way of doing that, then then great. It has a, it has a role to play. Yeah, and I, I think it takes all kinds. I think it takes hard-nosed, you know, realists who have no use for just saying, you know, the earth needs to survive, let's just make it happen. Uh, and people who I think feel that there is kind of a spiritual side of, of an obligation, a real moral need to, to do something. And I think there's no reason that everybody can't work together. And I, yeah, I mean, that is <laughs> that is what society is in a lot of ways. So, uh and but I, I think in general, just just to wrap up, uh, yeah, I think there's there's so much I, I think of an exciting framework in in this new economy project uh, to really see I think real positive action. So I think just just in general, if you had to say like what what makes you optimistic about the hopes that something really good you know could come of this? So I think partly it's the level of enthusiasm that this has generated. I think we weren't sure when we started this project how much it was going to appeal to people. Obviously, we hoped it would. But actually, these booklets have really, people have lapped them up. They've really struck a chord with people, both Quakers and not. And when I explain the project to people who aren't Quakers and don't necessarily know anything about Quakers, they say, well, that sounds great. Can I have a copy? And it feels like there is a desire. There's a real hunger there to engage with these issues. Um, I feel like things are changing very fast in the world at the moment, and that's very frightening. But actually, it does also feel like it's an atmosphere in which anything could happen. And we need to seize that and, and make sure that, you know, the actions that we're taking are building a, a better world, that we, the world, the kind of world that we want to see. Um, and that that understanding and, and passion, I think, among particularly younger people, not exclusively younger people, this understanding that we do need to radically rethink things if we're going to have a sustainable future, if we're going to live within our means, ecologically speaking, and if we're not going to make the current kind of exploitation and injustice that we see today worse um if we're going to address those issues there's so much work to be done and yeah i i the, the challenges are, are immense and you know it's, it's not always easy to feel optimistic about it but it feels like there is the desire is there there are a lot of great people with a lot of skills and enthusiasm working on these issues and we need to build links between those people and and, and strengthen our voice and and you know, strengthen the work that we do. Well, and thank you so much for, for sharing this work with, with us on the, on the program. So thanks, Olivia, for being here so much today. Thanks very much for having me on the show. We have been talking to Olivia Hanks of the New Economy Project, done by the British Quakers. You can hear this episode and all previous episodes of the show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Kesey Stanford.